Hey everybody and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking about eating disorders with Cynthia Bulick, the director of the UNC Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. Dr. Bulick is currently in Stockholm, Sweden, where she is also the director of the Center of Eating Disorders Innovation at the Karolinska Institute. We're right in the middle of National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which encourages talking about eating disorders. So let's do just that today. And let's start with the basics. What are eating disorders and what are some of the main ones that affect people today? So there are three primary eating disorders. The first one is the one that I think most people are aware of, and that's anorexia nervosa. And the hallmark feature of anorexia nervosa is low body weight. And that is really just a physical manifestation of it. There are also other aspects of it, like the refusal to recognize the dangerousness of the low body weight, and also the psychological aspect of your self-evaluation being unduly influenced by body weight or shape. So that's probably the most visible and the most sort of widely recognized eating disorder. The second eating disorder is bulimia nervosa. And this is binge eating or eating an unusually large amount of food in a short period of time, coupled with a feeling of being out of control when you're eating. And then in bulimia, that is coupled with compensatory behaviors, which can either be self-induced vomiting, the use of laxatives, excessive exercise. The third eating disorder, and interestingly, the most prevalent eating disorder is binge eating disorder. And that actually only became sort of a bona fide psychiatric diagnosis in 2013. And binge eating disorder is that same feature of binge eating, so eating an unusually large amount of food and feeling out of control, but in the absence of those compensatory behaviors. So what people do feel when they binge eat, both in bulimia and binge eating disorder, is often a sense of guilt or disgust or depression associated with the binge eating. When looking at these main eating disorders, what are some of the health problems that come along with them? Yeah, we really have to break it down by disorder because they differ to some extent. So anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. And part of that is actually suicide. So the suicide risk for people with anorexia is elevated in some studies over 10 times that of their peers. So death is the worst possible outcome. But we also see osteoporosis long-term. We see lots of problems with the circulatory system. We can see total heart failure. Basically, every organ in the body suffers when a person is in a starvation state, and that's what anorexia nervosa is. For bulimia nervosa, one of the biggest problems you see when people purge is an electrolyte imbalance. And of course, that can lead to heart failure in and of itself. So you have to be very careful and make sure you get your blood monitored to make sure your electrolytes aren't out of whack, for lack of a more medical term. But also long-term, both anorexia and bulimia, we also in women see amenorrhea, so the absence of menstrual periods or irregular menstrual periods, which of course can also have long-term effects on your ability to reproduce, have babies, things like that. With binge eating disorder, binge eating disorder is a really interesting case because we just completed some studies that show lots of anxiety disorders, lots of depression, which we see across all of the eating disorders, but also a lot of somatic problems. So a lot of physical illnesses that are associated with binge eating. And that's not just due to the fact that a substantial portion of people with binge eating disorder are also overweight. So it's not just because of weight, it's something that's independent that affects your health that's related to binge eating. 
Who is typically affected by eating disorders? Is there a stereotype of the person who's likely to be diagnosed with an eating disorder or can it affect anybody? I actually think that's a great question because there is no stereotype. And I think stereotyping these disorders is actually what's held the field back for decades probably. So anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder quite simply do not discriminate. It can strike anyone, anytime, any sex, any racial or ethnic background, any age, any socioeconomic status. There are some patterns. For example, we do see a preponderance of females. So more girls and women get anorexia and bulimia. You have to be really careful about that because we don't want people to think that only girls and women get the disorder. Men and boys get the disorders too. Binge eating disorder, in contrast, is a little bit more evenly split between the sexes. So, you know, we really do want to keep people away from thinking about any of these old stereotypes about eating disorders. So what are some of the signs of eating disorders? What are some of the red flags that people should be looking out for? Anorexia is the easiest one because you see appreciable weight loss. But truth be told, there are also people who have all the signs and symptoms of anorexia nervosa who might have started out larger, so they haven't actually gotten down to a really low body weight. But yet, you might see that they're restricting their food intake. Families might find that they're not eating with them anymore. You might find that they're constantly checking their body, like to see if there's body fat in different places. You're always checking with people saying, does this make me look fat? Do you think I look too fat in this? You just lots of almost obsessional-like behavior in checking with other people. So that's anorexia nervosa. And you can also see anorexia and bulimia, there might be evidence of food disappearing. So people who have bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, or if they have a mixture with anorexia with bulimic features, often they will eat very large amount of food. So parents or roommates might see food disappearing. And that's a sign. Or seeing a lot of wrappers underneath the bed or in drawers or something like that. Another sign is people sort of rushing to the bathroom after dinner all the time or after meals. You know, that's a sign that someone might actually be purging after meals. And another one that we see often, you know, especially on, in college age individuals and in campuses, is excessive exercise. If you see someone who's exercising, like even when they're sick or even when they're injured and they're just determined to get that exercise and to get those pounds down or to get that body fat percentage down, that's a sign that someone might be quite ill as well. From some of the signs that you just mentioned, it sounds like somebody can have an eating disorder and have no idea that they have it. It is absolutely possible that people have an eating disorder and they have no idea because sometimes some of these behaviors, especially, for example, the working out behavior or the behavior where one's being really careful to eat sort of healthy foods, sometimes those can seem like really positive things at first blush. And, you know, parents or friends or partners might be really grateful, like, hey, you know, he's really trying to take care of himself or, you know, he's really looking after his nutrition. But then there comes that sort of critical inflection point where things go from being a healthy behavior to being an obsessional behavior or a behavior that is really out of control. And that's where you really have to be mindful of, you know, has this really gotten to the point where the person can't put the brakes on themselves anymore? Once somebody is diagnosed with an eating disorder, what's the process to recovery like? Recovery varies by individual. But one thing it's not is linear. And I think often people expect that, you know, you go in, you get treatment, and then there's just this clear, predictable, straight trajectory toward health. 
And one of the things that we've seen for all of the eating disorders is that it's a twisty, curvy kind of a road to go from illness to health. And we see often across all three disorders that sometimes there are periods of recovery, and then sometimes they're followed by slips, you know, where you can still regain control, and even relapses, where you need to get back in there, get more treatment, and then get yourself stabilized again. That does not mean that recovery is not possible, because for all three eating disorders, the data are clear that people can and do recover. And right now, for all of the eating disorders, for anorexia, renourishment is the critical first step. You have to get people renourished. You have to get their weight back up so that their brains can work again. And then you can do additional psychotherapy to really work through the psychological aspects of the treatment. For both bulimia and binge eating disorder, psychotherapy is the treatment of choice. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the most likely type of therapy that people get and that has successful and positive outcome. And for those, sometimes anywhere from like 20, sometimes up to 40 sessions might be necessary in order for someone to get well and stay well. But it's always great, even after you've had that first period of recovery, to remember that there's no harm and there's no shame in going back to get some booster sessions if you feel like your behavior might be slipping again. Let's talk about some of the research surrounding eating disorders. What are you currently investigating? So we have just completed the first phase of the largest genetic investigation ever of anorexia nervosa. And we collected 13,000 samples, DNA samples, from people with anorexia nervosa over two and a half years, which was just a Herculean effort to get all these samples together. And all of those samples right now are up in Boston, cued to be genotyped so we can actually look at and start figuring out what the precise genes are that influence risk for anorexia nervosa. And then the next step is we're going to do the same thing for bulimia and binge eating disorder because all of the other psychiatric disorders, they're a little bit ahead of us. And I think this comes from the fact that eating disorders has been misunderstood for so long. But now we've entered the era of genome-wide association studies. We're collecting these large samples that are necessary because it's not going to be one gene that influences risk for anorexia. We're talking it's going to be hundreds of genes that influence risk. Um, so we've got our work cut out for us, and we've got cooperation from, at this point, 22 countries around the world, which is pretty awesome. Why do you think it's going to be so important to look at the genetic and biological aspects of eating disorders? Biology is really important because all the other psychiatric disorders, we've managed to develop medications to help, either to cure or to stabilize. When you look at anorexia nervosa, there is not a single medication that can effectively treat that illness. And in part, that's because we don't understand the biology well enough. And it's about time that we really go in there and say, hey, what's really going on biologically, genetically, metabolically, to understand how these people have the ability to reach such a low body mass index when the rest of the world can barely lose a couple pounds and keep it off. And there's an intriguing biology associated with it that makes their bodies able to do something completely different than the rest of the world. And that might be really informative, not just for understanding anorexia, but also for understanding obesity and overweight. And not only that, but to help figure out how better to address parts of the world that are undergoing famine and how to re-nourish those people and really improve their life as well. So it's one of those really interesting situations where understanding a relatively rare disease might have really broad implications for major public health problems. 
As we mentioned before, this is National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. So let's talk about the awareness factor here. How important is it to simply raise awareness of eating disorders? I think the first step toward destigmatization is awareness. And that's what's so amazing about National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which is actually making its way around the world. And the topic this year is all about talking about it. You know, get it out of the shadows. Don't have this be a hush-hush thing that no one talks about. Bring it out into the open, shine light on it, and make people feel comfortable to be able to say, hey, I'm struggling. I need help. And I think we've done this with, for example, the best example perhaps is breast cancer. You know, breast cancer used to be a hush-hush thing that no one talks about. And now we have NFL football players wearing pink shoes during games. And that is really probably the poster child for talking about an illness, for getting it out in the open, and really increasing awareness, increasing research, and improving cures. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. And don't forget to check back to unc.edu next week for another episode of Well Said.